two kinds of sins religious people commit. Romans 2, 11 to 29. Seems to be a season of longer texts that we're working through. Romans chapter 2, verse 11, and we're going to read to verse 29. For God shows no partiality. For God shows, that means he's linking this with what he's just said, and I'll talk about that in a minute. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. We know from previous statements and future statements, no one's going to be justified by keeping the law. He's building a theoretical case here. 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, we talked about conscience last week, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They didn't get the Ten Commandments. They didn't get the the revealed scriptures. They, the Gentiles, 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secret hearts of men by Jesus Christ. Interesting, when Paul talks about his gospel, my gospel, verse 16, he includes God's judgment. We think of the gospel as being just the news about his grace, which it is, but it's not just that. There's another side to the gospel, judgment. If you leave out judgment, you're not talking about the same gospel. That's my point here. 17. But if you call yourself a Jew, so he's been talking about the Gentiles up till here, and conscience and the way they implement the law of God, even though they haven't a record given to them. Now he's talking about the the Jew, the one who has received all of this from God directly. If you call yourself a Jew, 17, and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law... And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, and then you teach others, do you not teach yourself? Well, you preach against stealing. Do you steal? And you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you you commit adultery? You who, are, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. 25. For circumcision, that old covenant sign, indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is circumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. 
nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from, from God. Man, there's a lot there. Let's, let's go fast. Last week, not last week because we had worship night last Sunday night, didn't we? The week before, we studied Romans 2, verses 1 through 11. And a quick review would summarize uh, the second form of general revelation by which a person's sinfulness is established. There were two forms of general revelation given to the Gentile, the Greek, the non-Jew. The first form of general revelation, it was the manifestation of God's greatness, his might, his power in creation. And Paul described that in 1, 18 to 32. We talked about it. Everybody can see that. You don't need a Bible. Then the second form of general revelation given to Greeks, Gentiles, non-Jews. The second form was described in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Creation is the outward form of general revelation. Conscience is the inward form of general revelation. This, this sense of moral oughtness that's in every person. It gets marred, it gets bent out of shape. Culturally, it can change over time, but it's there. And mankind's sinfulness is established by the way, Paul says, he approves of those who practice wickedness. That's in 132. And the way he does things that he would disapprove of except when they're done to him. Please notice that something that never gets said, that 132 is what I'm talking about here. I think I understand that when I uh, break God's law, when I commit a sin, my guilt is established before God. What is rarely said and needs to be thought about a lot by the church Romans 1.32, if you got it there, you can look at it. What Paul says is, moral guilt is also established in me in the way I approve of wickedness in other people. In other words, I don't have to commit the same sin to be guilty of it. Think about that for a minute. I'm judged guilty when I approve of the wickedness that you're proud of, and, and by my silence, and let's face it, we live in a culture where there's an awful lot of pressure on Christian people not to come across as intolerant or judgmental, and the church gradually is just shutting up about culturally accepted sins. Gradually, the church is shutting up about those things for a lot of reasons. But Romans 1.32 says there's two ways God looks at Don Horbin. He looks at the way I practice sin myself, and he looks at the way I approve of sin in other people. 
And that's something we all, I think, need to consider and, and, and need to think about. So up until here, up until tonight's text, Paul generally has been talking about the Gentile with general revelation and the inner revelation of conscience and the fact that he doesn't thank God and honor God when he sees general revelation and he doesn't obey the witness of his inner conscience in the way he practices sin himself and the way he approves of it in other people. That's where we're at. Tonight, he's going to start talking now about... If you remember back in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Point number one. I want to say something else, but I'm not going to. The untarnished justice of God in judging all people... As sinners. If you look at verse 12, Romans 2, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law, that's the Jews, they will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires through conscience, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse on that day when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So Paul's whole point is to establish, he wants to establish the universal guilt of mankind before God. Verse 12 makes it clear that Paul is only describing sinners here. All who have sinned without the law will will perish. All who have sinned under the law will be judged. He's only thinking of sinners. There's a theoretical kind of righteousness where he says if you kept the law, you'd be just a... But nobody keeps the law perfectly. There's no moral perfection in any people, Gentile or Jew. No one's going to make it that way. His whole point is the only people God has to work with are sinners. There's sinners who have the law and there's sinners who don't have the law. It might not look that way. You probably know some nice people who aren't Christians. You probably know some nice people who are engaged in other religions. And they're as friendly as you are. They're as polite as you are. They serve their community as much as you do. They give to charities. They're honest. And so it, it, it might not look like what Paul says is quite right. The Jew given the law... The Gentile without the law, that they're all sinners. They're all guilty before God. And the reason it doesn't look that way to us is because God's going to judge, 2.16, the secrets of our hearts. You, you, you look at me. I don't know what you think of me. Maybe you think he's a pretty decent guy. Goes through passages of scripture. I hear him pray sometimes. He seems to be reasonably decent to his wife and family. Goes to church a lot. 
surely he doesn't fit anywhere where Paul's talking about humankind. But that's because you don't, you don't see the secrets in my heart. You see. When God looks at Don Horbin, he doesn't see what you see. God sees every time I have a thought that is uh, proud. He sees every time that I am self-seeking. He sees every time that I put my kingdom first and his kingdom second. God looks at Don Horbin's heart and he sees every second on the clock when I don't love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what he sees. And so Paul labels to establish the universal guilt of mankind. Now the Jews, when they hear Paul talking about the Gentile and his conscience and his response to the revelation in creation and the fact that he, he's not morally consistent, he doesn't always practice righteousness, he's a sinner, the Jew would sit there and go like this, yes, those, gen, those Gentiles. And then to their surprise, Paul would start in with tonight's text and he would he would turn and he would address some big errors in Jewish thinking about their own relationship with God. Paul talking about his own people, the Jews. Point number two. Why religion without Christ can't save and the two kinds of sins religious people commit. Let's move into it. The two kinds of sins he's talking now to the Jew. Two kinds of sins religious people commit. It's in 17 through 24. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed in the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, in the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And then, you then who teach others, do you, do you not teach yourself while you preach against stealing? You can see what he's getting at here. He, he doesn't just mean these sins. He's just using these as examples. You preach against stealing. Do you steal? You say don't commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. Now, these are pretty tightly woven verses. Uh, And the important thing is to see two forms of religious wickedness that Paul sees a perfect picture of in the Jews of his day. First, he says there, and he, he, he knows this from himself, you'll see his own testimony. They are proudly self-sufficient and arrogant in their standing as God's chosen people. 17 and 18 of chapter 2. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed in the law, dot, 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 dot. Note that the phrase is rely on the law, boast in God. And Paul's point He came to see it for himself. 
He writes about it for himself in Philippians as a, as a Jew of Jews, he says. Paul's point is there's, there's nothing acceptable that can be offered to God from a, a self-righteous stance like that. God's special revelation in the law, the scriptures, was given to awaken humility, dependence, a reception of a promised Savior, as we'll see in coming weeks. And so Paul saw in his own people, the Jews, he saw this proud self-righteousness. And he says it's only going to bring the judgment of God. They were proud at just being the ones who had received the law. Do you remember when Jesus would try and deal with, with the Pharisees and he talked to them about, he tries to point out their spiritual blindness. And they, most of the synoptics have the passage where they look at Jesus and they say, no, 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 we have Abraham as our father. Remember? Don't, don't, don't talk to us about this. We're Jews. We have Abraham as our father. And they would shut out the promised Messiah. And the reason they shut out the coming Messiah is because they had, they had the law. They had the sign of circumcision. They were Abraham's descendants. And the prophet Zephaniah wrote of the day when God would purge his people of their trust in their own special status. It's in Zephaniah 3.11. Pray that the Lord helps you find Zephaniah in the Old Testament. And he says, on that day, there's a day coming. You shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. They needed to be cleansed of that. They needed to be delivered of that. They need to be saved from that. So it's very important. It's not only the breaking of the law that requires repentance. Relying on the law as a means of righteousness brings the judgment of God. We know this because Paul, Paul, in describing his pre-conversion experience, he describes himself, shockingly, as being blameless as far as keeping the law was concerned. If you've never seen that, it's in Philippians chapter 3, verses 3 to 6. Paul now, talking about his own experience, okay, he takes the theology that he's unpacking in Romans 2, 11 to 29. He takes that theology and he unpacks it in his own experience. And here's what he says, Philippians 3, starting at verse 3. He says, for we are the real circumcision. Who are the, who are, who are the real Jews? Do they all live in Israel? Descendants of Abraham? For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence. See, there it is, the pride, the confidence. Put no confidence in the flesh. When he talks about the flesh, he's talking about that outward sign of circumcision. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day 
of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, listen, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, Paul says. You couldn't find a thing wrong with me. And then he encounters Christ and he says, it's all dung. I'd like to see what a modern translation might do with that one. All of it, he says. That's what it is. You you can't stand on any of that before God. That's what he's saying. After saying, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, he says, but I'm I'm, I'm the chiefest of sinners. So, So, in what sense? I mean, if Paul kept the law perfectly, in what sense was he a sinner? And he came to see that he had been using the law to establish his own righteousness before God. And Paul says, there's the biggest sin. There's the biggest sin. Do you know how many people don't go to church ever? They know about the gospel. They live all around this building. And if you try to tell them about Jesus... They will tell you that, that they, you know, they grew up in a Baptist home, that, that, that they're honest people, they're good people, they're moral people. And what they're doing is, there they go, they're piling up the good. There, see, I, I think I qualify. This is God's word to all the religions of mankind that ignore God's redeeming grace in Christ Jesus. So, two forms of wickedness. One, relying on the law as a means of righteousness. And secondly, the Jews didn't live up to the standards they taught to others. It's in 19 to 24. I won't read it all again. I've read it twice. Where that's where he talks about you, you preach against stealing. Do you steal? You talk about adultery. Do you commit adultery? Those, those kinds of things. Paul has already discussed this universal form of human sin right at the beginning of chapter 2 where he said, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another you condemn yourself because you practice the very same things. But he comes back to it specifically now talking about the sins of religious people, the Jewish people. There's, There's a particular form that is strongly blameworthy because they had such a clear revelation of God's righteousness in the law and in the Old Testament scriptures. It's especially wicked for people having received, chapter 3, verse 2, the very oracles of God. What, what, What should have happened is they should have been even more aware of their sinfulness. That's what the law was designed to do. Point number three, the strongest proof of the sin of religious pride was found by Paul in the attitude held by the Jews regarding this outward covenant sign of of circumcision. This is the last point I'll I'll wrap up with, with this. He says, for circumcision, I'm at 25, chapter 2, 25, we're going to finish at 29. 
For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So you see how just relying on Jewish ethnicity, you can see what a shaky foundation that's on. 26, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? In other words, circumcision is just an indicator. It doesn't accomplish anything by itself. 27, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code of circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Just stop for a minute. Let those words land on your mind with appropriate force. Who is a Jew? God's people. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. How many? That's a striking sentence. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. It was the claim of Judaism during the time of the little history, the Maccabean Revolt, in the era of the the second temple in Jerusalem, it was the claim, no person who is circumcised will go down to Gehenna. That was Jewish doctrine. That was a prevalent view during Paul's day, and to it, Paul wants to give some special attention. Paul's words in 2.9-11 would have been stunning to the Jewish ear, where he says there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first, and also the Greek. That, 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 that Jewish people were as vulnerable to God's judgment and wrath as the Gentiles was an impossible concept in their mind. An impossible concept. It still is. Circumcision was viewed as protection from divine wrath and judgment. After all, circumcision, the sign of belonging to God's covenant people given to Abraham, it predated the law of Moses. And Paul's argument is outward circumcision only has value to the degree that it reflected a circumcised heart, one that was humble, sensitive to the Spirit of God, aware of its own need. The whole purpose of the law, of which circumcision was a sign, was to humble a man before God and and just open up the heart to the way of the cross and God's redemption. One more tricky issue, point number four. Some of Paul's words leave the impression that people can find salvation through the keeping of the law. And I want to just read some verses to you. Are these all in your notes? There's three passages. Yes? Okay, good. It sounds like it when you read these verses. 
Romans 2, 6 to 9. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, also the Greek. Look at Romans 2.13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but doers of the law who will be justified. There it is, salvation by works. Look at 25 to 27. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes, becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. It looks, from all those texts, like, like a person could attain salvation simply through keeping the law. And Paul seems to describe people who could do that. The only problem is we know that isn't the case because Paul makes direct, clear, unqualified statements to the opposite. Like Romans 3.9. What then? Are the Jews any better off? Look at, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. How many people are under sin? Romans 3, 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For, look, by works of the law, no human being, that covers Jews and Gentiles, right? We're agreed? By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Why? Well, through the law, here's what comes, a knowledge of sin. So, <clears throat> excuse me, this is critical to understand Paul's argument in Romans 2. Paul isn't pointing out how people are saved. He's pointing out how people, Jew and Gentile, will be judged. His whole argument is developed to show that all are in the same boat. They're on the same footing in their accountability before God. The Jew has no advantage in terms of escaping accountability for his sin over the Greek. Neither knowledge of the law nor physical circumcision has potential as a covering for human sin and wickedness. Neither one has the capacity to change the heart or to circumcise the heart, as our text says. Verse 29, our last verse, Romans 2, 29, is the first place in the New Testament. It's not the last. It's the first place in the New Testament where, to the horror of the Jews of Paul's day, those who were ethnically non-Jews are called Jews. That's the first place it happens in the Bible. Now, 
This reaches far beyond any sincere attempt at a faithful keeping of the law in the Old Testament to the dawn of a brand new era where the Spirit of God would turn the hearts not only to keep the outward demands of the law, which Paul had dedicated himself to as a Pharisee, but to the, the kind of inward keeping of the law. Paul says, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have even known covetousness was a sin, except the law came and mentioned covetousness. And I realized, Paul said, this is why all, all of his law keeping, all the ceremonies, all the rituals, all the rules, it was powerless. He said, I, I realized all of a sudden that the problem wasn't out there. The problem was in here and the law couldn't help. And your conscience can't help. It can only reveal sin. And preaching can't do it. It can only reveal sin and the need to our Savior. And so, you know, in a place like this, church, we, we just never, ever, ever have to quit lifting up the name of Jesus. If what Paul is saying is true, I know it's dense logic. Paul isn't writing, you know, Psalm 23-ish type scriptures. It's, it's therefore, because of this, so, therefore, so, this, so, and sentences like that. But if what he is saying is true, that there isn't, there isn't, enough, there isn't enough beauty in the world around us to save us. There isn't enough strength in our inward conscience where we, we know what sin is, but it, it won't help us to keep it. And there isn't enough religious law and instruction to purify the heart. Then all of a sudden, what he's doing is bringing all of us to the point where we're going to say, well, what works then? Well, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to salvation. To the Jew first also to the Greek. Let's pray.